Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Johnson and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. I'm going to introduce this week's guest in a moment's time, but I just wanted to give a quick heads up and ask a favor of you guys. So I've been working on a survey for listeners. Um, I've gotten to know a lot of you through the World Wide Web since uh, Perpetual Chess's creation, and some of you, of course, I know in person. But it would be helpful for me to have more information about like what your rating is, like what your listening habits are what you're interested in hearing more of, what you're interested in hearing less of. So I created a survey that takes maybe five minutes, and it would be a great service to me if you guys could just uh, fill it out. So what you should do is go to the website, perpetualchesspod.com, and then they'll, you'll be able to click on survey from there and take the survey. I'll also post it on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Even if you're not a regular listener, um, or maybe you... There's things you don't like about the podcast. I am open to hearing all of it. This is kind of a rare opportunity. I'm going to leave this survey open for a few weeks, but after that, I'm not going to be bugging you guys about it for a while. So I would really appreciate it if you could uh, provide me with a little more information so I can keep trying to make the show better. Uh, with that long spiel out of the way, let's get to this week's episode. So uh, my guest this week is a personal friend of mine who's uh, been a fixture on the chess scene in the U.S., although he hails from up north in Canada. Um, and he's also uh, made a transition to finance. So of course, grandmaster at chess, now works at a hedge fund, uh, pillar of the New York chess scene, Pascal Charbonneau. Pascal, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. So, Pascal... Why don't we start by just, I think most people will have heard of you who are listening to this, particularly in North America, but just to give people a little more background, you're one of, you were one of Canada's top players, uh, went to UMBC on a chess scholarship, as many of our guests have gone to various colleges on a chess scholarship, and then you made your way into the finance world. So you still keep a toe in the chess world, but why don't you tell people what you're up to these days, what your day-to-day life is like? 
Sure. So I think, you know, when I when I grew up, I never I never thought of myself as someone who was very likely to be a professional chess player. I think maybe, you know, I started to consider that possibility at some point. Uh, but then ultimately, like you said, I, you know, I ended up in, in college at UMBC. And, uh, you know, afterwards, I started looking for a job, I, I realized, quite frankly, that, you know, having focused more on, uh, on uh, chess for, uh, you know, the college years, um, that it wasn't so easy to just get a start in finance. But I was uh, fortunate enough to, to, to find a job eventually at a small brokerage firm um, by the New York Stock Exchange and, you know, in the city. And, uh, so I started doing, you know, what we call basically institutional brokerage and sales, um, and then transitioned a couple of years later to a hedge fund called Alpine Associates, where I've been for almost 10 years. Uh, I started basically as a, as a trader slash, you know, right-hand man, uh, for, for the fund, uh, you know, working with one of the portfolio managers and, uh, you know, I've sort of worked my way up since then. Um, the fund, you know, manages, uh, I don't know, something like a, about $2 billion. And uh, we invest in a strategy um, that's called merger arbitrage. And that might get people a little bit confused. But uh, essentially, we look at, at stocks that are in the process of getting acquired. And it, it, it sounds very exciting because it sounds like, you know, companies getting acquired, you probably get a large premium. But, but typically, it's more like an insurance business almost where you, you once a uh, once a deal gets announced and a company is going to be acquired there's a whole process that 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 goes on that can take anywhere from a few months to to over a year and essentially you're you're compensated for for the risk of having that position that the 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 deal might not go through and that then the premium goes away and so we we try to to you know get in situations where we believe the odds are in our favor and and basically, that's what I work on day to day, you know, in a nutshell. Okay, yeah, and I've talked to you about it in the little, a little in the past. Uh, I don't live in, as listeners probably know, I don't live in New York anymore, but we used to see each other once in a while. Um, and yeah, that's that's a good description. I think uh, you basically covered covered the bases. I mean, when something gets bought on the public market, it's usually at a premium. So if you buy and hold, as long as the deal doesn't go if the deal blows up uh it costs you money but otherwise it can be a relatively lower risk way to make money yeah and to be clear like so like a premium will be 25 or 30 percent and on day one the stock might go up 22 percent and you're trying to collect the last three three you know to five percent something like that right trying to assess if it's uh if there's still uh meat to be picked off that bone as as it were exactly so what's your day-to-day like uh doing this work yeah, so it's it's a combination, it's a combination of general market research. So so for example, I will, uh, you know, I'll read all the financial news. I'll read the Wall Street Journal. I'll read I'll read uh, you know notes that I get every morning about what's going on in the world. You know, I end up following news, politics, you know, anything that relates to the economy, which you know, politics for for better or worse uh, have a lot to do with sometimes. Um, and then it's dealing with these specific situations. And what's interesting about it is that it's not it's not sector specific. So, you know, one day I could be looking at a, a drug company. The other day I could be looking at a semiconductor company or, a, or an oil company. And so, you know, pretty quickly you have to familiarize, familiarize yourself with uh, with the asset. And then the, the, the merger business itself is very legal because uh, – you know, there's a contract and, and everything is about what's in a contract and what could lead the contract to be broken. 
And um, so some of that will be, you know, antitrust analysis, you know, as maybe some of the listeners have heard, some some deals sometimes get blocked by uh, for antitrust reasons like uh, competition. Uh, for example, you know, Rite Aid was trying to merge with Walgreens and the government didn't let that, that go through. And, um, you know, companies that, that people have heard of, it, it, it does happen somewhat infrequently, but it happens. So so some of the work is is looking at how companies compete and, you know, for example, whether you know whether we think that the government's going to ultimately let it go through or not with or without divestitures and all this kind of research and then um also you know there's some fundamental work on trying to value companies because uh whether because we think a company might get another bid or or the deal might not go through then it's very important to 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 know what the company might be worth and so we do more standard kind of like uh any equity you know stock analyst would do we look at a company and see what we think it's worth? Okay, sounds good. And uh, for listeners, um, this is another topic we've hit a little bit, but of course, there's a, a long history of uh, chess grandmasters making a transition into finance. Um, it's not like an automatic thing, but our you know our our mutual friend Dimitri Schneider uh, is uh, off in Asia now, um, working in finance. And then there's prominent people like Patrick Wolf, Luke McShane, David Norwood. So. Um, yeah, Alex Fishbein. Alex Fishbein. Um, in New York. Boaz Weinstein made him <laughs> making a killing. Um, so yeah, he's not a grandmaster, but he's made a lot more money than any of us. So, <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and then you have like Peter Thiel. Uh, you know, tangentially related subject, but obviously a chess player who's uh, managed to scratch together a, a couple pennies. Um, so. Yep. So one thing that I think some younger question that younger listeners might have is: uh, Did chess help you get in the door of finance? Yeah, so I think you know there's a, there's a couple of things that I say about that. Uh, first of all, first of all, I mean, the, in one word, absolutely. Uh, but then you know to elaborate a little bit, um, the first, the very first job that I got, I would never have gotten without chess because the the owner of the company was a, a guy named Sid Bellsberg, who was a, a very wealthy uh, guy from Canada who had a company called Bellsberg Technologies, and he was the sponsor of the Canadian Olympic team, the chess team, for, for several years. And, and so I'd gotten to know him. And um, when I graduated from college, I decided to get in touch with him because, you know, I, I, I had tried sort of the standard, like applying to Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and Bank of America and Merrill and Lehman back then, Bear Stearns, you know, all those firms. And I wasn't really getting anywhere. Um, so then I realized, you know, you got to talk to people that you know and just see if anything comes up. And so, you know, after speaking with him, I, at first the thought was that really he would uh, put me in touch with people that he knew, like he knew Carl Icahn, um, you know, a very famous uh, activist investor. He knew a bunch of other people. He was he was on the board of the Kasparov Chess Foundation, which has, you know, Stan Druckenmiller on it. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I think he decided that I, which is a good, was a good thing. He decided that I was a, a smart guy and he would rather just hire me himself. And so I got started working for him. You know, he was sort of expanding from a financial technology company into the brokerage business. But, you know, make a long story short, I would never have gotten that job without chess because, you know, chess is a, a really useful network of people that have uh, mutual respect for each other. Um, and, uh, you know, as a as a young chess player, you have to learn to harvest those relationships and, and and at times you know leverage them into hopefully getting some work. Um, then the, the other thing I say is that you know in my in my day to day life, 
you know, I, I don't exactly broadcast like I'm a chess grandmaster, you know, so talk to me and, and I'm really smart. Um, so right. I would never do that. But, you know, having been doing what I do for, for, for the for basically 10 years, I don't usually necessarily tell people that I was a chess player, or that I am a chess player, I should say. But um, but generally it comes out in some way, whether because someone else tells them or 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 they just they just know from, from having known me for a long time. And. I think, you know, having that as your background gives you a respect that that other people have to earn in other ways. And, and, you know, and it takes time. And so I think that, you know, when I meet the CEO of a company or when I speak to, you know, um, someone at a bank that I want to get some information out of, uh, it's very helpful that I often get an introduction as a really smart guy who's a chess player. Um, and it's it's almost like as if I have a little bit of a leg up, uh, you know, in these relationships, and and that's got value. That's hard to sort of pinpoint or or, or evaluate, but it, it's definitely there, and it's it's followed me throughout, and it's it's uh, I think it's been extremely useful. Okay, so there you have it. So any young listeners should network and continue to study chess because the the better you are, the the more lofty an introduction you can get. Um, such as uh, what we will talk about with uh, your, your, of course, crowning achievement of having beaten a certain Vichy Anand in, a, in the Olympiad. But we'll get to that later, because right now I just want to sort of tie together chess and finance just a, sure. uh, a bit more. So uh, last sort of question for those listeners who are rolling their eyes saying, when are they going to talk about chess? We're, we're getting there. But what would you recommend for uh, younger, like, would you recommend getting in the finance field? It's notoriously competitive, but overall, do you do you like your work and feel like uh, uh, other chess players might might like it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough question. I mean, I think the the, the simple answer is, I you know, I think I've, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the way my life has turned out. So that's number one. Now, you know, finance, finance is a definitely a very tough world to get into. And I feel like the dominoes kind of fall into place in a way that is often unexpected. And so if you had told me like out of college where I would be 12 years later, I would have absolutely no idea. And, and so and, and when I applied for work coming out of college, for me, finance was this broad thing. I was thinking I was going to be, you know, an investment banker. Or like I didn't even know the difference between different, um, you know, sort of paths that you can have within finance. And so, you know, I think. I think as a whole, it's it's a it's a good place to be. Now, you know, the world has changed a little bit since uh, I'm sure as most listeners uh, have heard about the the you know the financial crisis in 2008 did change a lot of things for for hedge funds, but for also for for banks and you know kind of put a cloud on the entire industry. That you know, so I think that the these these sort of golden years of that finance was clearly like the number one thing to do are, are behind us, but it's still a, it's still a, a great field, which can be very lucrative if, if things go well. And, you know, it's, but it requires perseverance. It requires the, the, you know, I think for, 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 for chess players, sometimes what's, what can be difficult. And what I've seen in the past is that, you know, we, we think we're smart people and that we somehow deserve to have a job that, that are, that, you know, exploits all of our skills and brain power. And the, the truth of the matter is, at least for me, is that at the beginning, you know, you, you start from the bottom just like in anything. And, you know, I was working on the, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange getting people coffee and, and they would have me go get their lunch. And, you know, I had to kind of to stomach it and just do it. And, and you know, I, it, it didn't last that long. And, and pretty quickly, I think I was able to to distinguish myself and, and, and you know, and go up in the world. But it's uh, 
you know, it's something that you have to be willing to accept. And and I think for especially the, the strongest players that that can sometimes be difficult for for valid reasons. But uh, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a long winded answer, I guess. But. No, it's um, but it's good insight. And uh, you know, we've talked about this, Pascal, and I've talked about it a little on the show. But I I myself sort of had that experience and have the the scars on my back to prove it because I I didn't I didn't have delusions of grandeur about my chess abilities, but I had a pretty successful run in poker and then burnt out on poker. And because I did well in poker, playing against basically people who weren't that good, I now, you know, you you realize more in hindsight. I uh, tried to trade independently for a while and didn't do terribly, but ultimately realized just how hard it was. And um, that's what brought me back to chess is realizing like, um, I, you know, I need to... I can I can work on finance and poker and stuff like that, but I need uh, consist- well having kids is, relates to it too. But need consistent income um, in order to pursue dreams like that. So it's tricky. I mean, if you're young, you can take lots of chances. But I am not that young anymore. I'm forty. So at some point, you you took your chances, and maybe they worked, maybe they didn't, but you move on. So um, I yeah. I find it a fascinating field. But like you know, for every person like you who. Uh, has ended up in a great situation. Uh, there may be others who just can't get in the door or try it on their own and end up uh, recalibrating. Yeah, it's, and that's why it's such a tough question because I know that you know it's it's not it's not easy to get into it and it can be frustrating. But you know, at some point, I guess you, um, if you're able to get what I would say is that if you can, if you can get in the field or even around the field and be close enough, you know, a lot of movement happens laterally and and, and vertically within one firm, and 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 so you know, um, sometimes that's, that's what you have to do. And, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed that for me, for me, the, the world of finance and trying to figure out what happens next, you know, both on a macro and on a micro level, it is, you know, like a game and, and something that I think is, is really fun. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't a hundred things that I have to do at my job that I wish I never had to do, but, but the, the, the part that I really do enjoy is, is, is looking at it kind of like a chess game on, on, you know, what's going to happen next and how can I figure this out? And, and, you know, what are the chances I'm going to be right? And, you know, of course, as a, as a poker player, you, uh, you, uh, <laughs> you've been around this, but the, the big difference is that it's, you know, it's a game of incomplete information with a huge amount of randomness, you know, uh, and, and outside factors that you really have no control over, you know, even less than when you're, when you're investing than you do in poker. And that's something that, you know, for, for, for a chess player like myself was, was a little bit difficult. Like you have to admit that you're going to be wrong a lot. And, you know, the, the, the best hedge funds are wrong all the time and, you know, they shine for a few years and then they, they don't shine. And that's, you know, and and then you wonder whether it was all random or not. So, yeah, but we're getting into something else now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I may want to talk about that a little later, but uh, let's get to chess. So I have a question from uh, a listener and supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott. Um, so Chris said, first, I'd like to say thank you, Pascal, for contributing a memory to my obituary for Savan Muradin a couple years ago. I always meant to reach back out and thank him, but that was such a crazy time. Thank him being you. Second, uh, with a full-time job and family life, how do you find time for chess? Specifically, knowing you have such a limited amount of time, how do you prioritize where to spend it? Yeah, so I mean, it's... Uh... I think I think it, when I look when I look at my life, there's there was the time before my son was born, and there's the time after. And for chess, for chess, I'd say that 
you know, he's 17 months now and, and, um, you know, an absolute joy. And, and, uh, I love being a father, but, uh, but for chess, it's, it's definitely, uh, the time is more difficult to find. And the, the, the truth of the matter is that I, you know, I haven't really played in tournaments in, in years, but people always, if people accuse me of being a retired chess player, I, I, I try to, to get mad at them and tell them that I'm not. I just don't have time to play. Um, but, you know, I follow chess tournaments. Uh, you know, like this morning I was looking at the games in Wake on Zay. Um, I play a lot of Blitz chess and, uh, you know, mostly, obviously, mostly online and to the point where sometimes now when I see a, a board in 3D, I'm, I, I wonder how it works. But, um, you know, chess chess has obviously taken sort of a back seat but i'm i'm hopeful that you know in in at some point in the future i will be able to get back to it you know whether it's because you know i i take a different career path after some time or or just you know end up having more time you know as as my my son and if i have other kids other kids get a little bit older um but you know it's it, the, the truth is i don't study chess and when i do play i wonder what opening to play and it's a real struggle and in, in fact like that that's the one thing i don't like about playing chess is is figuring out what opening to play because yeah. i've always played all sorts of things and i don't really know any of them anymore so right. it's it's always uh it's always it's always difficult but i i do play a ton of blitz and i and i still do and and i think i have enough understanding to to kind of get by you know against at least uh not really top level players um so but but you know the 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 fact is I don't really study chess anymore, and so you know it's uh I can't say I'm doing a great job of 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 uh, managing everything and spending a lot of time on it, yeah, well, I can certainly relate to that um not not playing at your level, but i I still enjoy playing a lot, but it's uh hard enough to find the time to play, let alone the time to study. Yeah, and it's what you prioritize. Like, so at at some point, you know, I, I had become pretty overweight, and you know, I decided that that it, it should be a priority for me to be in good health. And you know, I even had like high blood pressure at some point, and <clears throat> I, um, you know, I decided that that being in shape should be a priority, and that, for example, took a lot of time. You know, that uh, that could have otherwise been spent on chess, but you know, which I think was time well spent, and it it worked out well, and. You now actually do uh, CrossFit, like uh, oh okay, like uh, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> I've been you, doing that for about two years. But before that, I, I was just you know more of a regular gym goer, and I used to play tennis also. So I've, you know, my entire life as a kid, I played chess and tennis, and and I think there wasn't one weekend when I wasn't playing either a chess or a tennis tournament. You know, from when I was seven years old to sixteen. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, but but essentially, that's what it was, and and. Uh, you know, at some point I even kind of burnt out. So, you know, I think now I, I try to have a, you know, a healthy balance between my work and family life and, and the rest is kind of like, you know, if there's a little time, I'll play some blitz. And, you know, my goal is not to really break any records in chess right now. It's more like, you know, I enjoy it. And, and because I enjoy it, I want to keep doing it. And then, you know, if at some point I can be competitive again, then hopefully I can be. And I think my style lends itself well to to playing blitz and, and you know, and I haven't suffered too much from the theory because I was never that theoretical of a player. Uh, but I'm obviously very rusty and, you know, I never have enough time to feel like I shake off the rust. Right. And right now you're playing in the Pro Chess League and having to cross swords with uh, world number tw- 25, Laquang Liam and people like that. That must be uh, quite an experience. 
Yeah, so the the um, the opening scares me to death in those games, and you know, t- with White, I've actually had very good results, just kind of playing garbage, like not garbage, but very quietly, I would say. Like I'll play, you know, the Retti and the English opening, and you know, um, I just try to be solid and 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 then make it a game. But with Black, you know, against those guys who are really well prepared, it's difficult. But and the game with Laquan was actually kind of interesting i mean i think i misplayed the opening a little bit and the thing is the time control 15 minutes with two second increment is is tough because i think that the two second is actually a hindrance it would be better if there was no increment because then you just play fast but you feel like you have this two second increment and in a lot of games i end up with like no time and realizing that two seconds is really like you have to make a move instantly yeah and and against lequang i uh i eventually flagged in a position that's probably objectively a draw um, I mean, he, he has some slight chances, but it's probably a draw. There's not a lot of material on the board. And, like, I have an obvious capture of a bishop with my bishop with check, and for some reason I just froze and flagged. Yeah, and no. Then, yeah. It's interesting Sorry. what you say about the increment. I hadn't thought about it. I don't really use them. So, I mean, I, I'll use longer ones when they're called for, but I have never used the two-second increment, and I think I would yes. have trouble with that too. Well, so the the the, the chess world, you know, the, a lot of the top tournaments now have moved to, to a 30-second increment. And even when I started when I, you know, played in Olympiad and stuff, towards the end, I think we were playing with the 30-second increment, which, you know, is a completely different ballgame because you actually have a little bit of time to think and, and to and the moves don't just, you know, it's both sides, right? Like the back and forth, you have a little bit of time to see what you think your opponent is going to do and come up with what you think you're going to do. But with the two seconds, it becomes almost like like bullet chess, if, you know. And with the game with Laquang, he had 10 seconds, I had 10 seconds, and then I just flagged. So, you know, I... I I actually feel vindicated when, or not vindicated, but I feel good when I just get to a situation like that where at least, you know, I got him to, to, to use his time. <laughs> uh, and he's someone who plays very fast. But, you know, the, the previous game, so I, I played for the, the first week of the league, um, which I guess was about 10 days ago now. Um, I My first game was against a guy named Shimanov, who I think is 2640 FIDE or something like that. And uh, I played garbage opening. Actually, I think he had a move to, to be quite a bit better with black, quickly but then uh, i played a great game you know i was a little bit better and then i was much better and then i was completely winning and then um i did what i made a decision that i think you do when you're rusty which is i had a chance to trade queens into like a pawn up end game and i was just like oh that's that's so amazing like let's just you know let's just trade queens uh when in fact like if i kept the queens it's it, his position is awful it's like plus five on the computer or something wow. like that and and in and plus five because of like I can make five different moves, so it's not. It's not like um, it's right. just completely not one of those over. fleeting plus fives. No, yes. So, <laughs> well, or like it's a plus five that requires tremendous accuracy Precision, and yeah. finding a complicated variation. But in this case, it was just like dominating completely position with a lot of ways to to kind of break through. Well, I mean, but anyway, a- I ended up drawing that game. And it's yeah. amazing that you can hold your own against those guys. I mean, I'd, I'm curious, like, how do you feel? Um, are, do you beat yourself up, uh, like based on the results? Yeah. So, la- like last year, last year I had a game against Caruana where it was. I, th- I think at some point it was mate in two, but the, the mate in two is not even important. But but for I think I was up a rook or something like that, and uh, I ended up losing that game. And I, I was I, I was besides myself. I mean, it, obviously these are these are quick games, and uh, you know it, it doesn't you know, mean that much to, to win or lose, but, but I was, yeah, I beat myself up. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's difficult to play is that I end up, uh, 
you know, not sleeping the, the night after the games because I'm just playing through the games in my head and, you know, I can't help, I can't help it. And I've always kind of done that, but I think because I play less often now, you know, I get really sort of intellectually stimulated or like my brain just can't turn off um, after I play. And so that's a little bit of a detriment. And that's why I can't, I don't even play every week during the protest league, I think, because, you know, it's, it's hard on me if I, if I, I have to wake up, I normally wake up to go to the gym at 445. Wow. <laughs> so, um, I was going to ask you the secrets of weight loss and now, now I don't want to know. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, I, I think, I think the answer is, at least for me, it was, was pretty simple. I mean, you know, and, and I had a, at some point I had a more standard, you know, I, I've only been doing CrossFit for the last little bit, but, uh, I went from weighing, you know, probably about 210 pounds at my, uh, at my most to weighing about 150 at some point. Um, and you know, the, the dieting was, was really the, the key thing. I mean, I, I, I had sort of a typical, uh, finance lifestyle of going out to lots of dinners and drinking lots of alcohol and uh, not going to the gym a whole lot. And, you know, that's obviously not a healthy, and also my, my, the, my workplace has catered food of, you know, where you, you might have some healthy options, but the unhealthy options are a lot easier to find. Right. Um, so, you know, I just kind of went full circle on that um, and started, you know, eating a lot less carbs. Nothing that, nothing that would be, uh, you know, groundbreaking in terms of method. I mean, you know, cutting carbs out. Uh, so did you, you cut know, them you out know, entirely? No, I, I, never, I never went for anything too drastic. Um, but I did at some point, like, cut bread entirely. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, I didn't do, like, I never cut vegetables or anything like that because I actually don't really believe that that's a great thing. But obviously, there's a lot of theories and people that know uh, more than I do about that. But uh, just eating better, started going to the gym, and you know, I think once the once the the pounds came off a little bit, I just um, it almost became like you know a challenge to, to weigh myself every week and make sure that I had lost like another pound. You know, and um, but now I'm more like I'm more in between and I, I do a lot of weightlifting and I'm nowhere uh, near as good as Greg. So, I, you know, he's very competitive, but he'll, I, be, he'll I, be very glad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, I think it's 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 um, I'm not close enough to even to even be able to really pretend. So, yeah, Greg went out of I, his way to Greg went out of his way to tell me that like wrench does CrossFit, but like I can crush him. Greg tells me like, as, <laughs> as if I was dying to know. <laughs> like, I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that wrench uh, can crush me also. Okay. But you know, uh, but but I've had a good time with CrossFit. And one of the when I first started, so I've been doing it for maybe a year and a half. I'm not sure exactly, but you know, there's a there's a workout that they call um, Murph that that they do on Memorial Day, and it's a Murph. I guess was the name. Well, Murphy, I think, was the name of a uh, a veteran uh, who died in Afghanistan. I think and, um, his favorite workout was a workout of doing. Um, it's you do a mile run, then you do a hundred pull ups, two hundred push ups, three hundred squats, and then you do another mile run, and you're supposed to do it with a weight vest on, like the entire thing. And uh, when I when I was first, you know, a few months into doing CrossFit, I was like, this is completely impossible. Um, and uh, I told myself that I would try to do it like a year later. And so last year, like last Memorial Day in May. Uh, I did it not without a weight vest. Like the weight vest is really, I mean, th- th- this workout is very hard, I think, you know, without a weight vest, uh, but I did manage to do it and do the 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and, and the two-mile runs. 
um, you know, in a reasonable time. So I was very happy with that. But, you know, uh, with CrossFit and, and with most other things, I, I found that it's, uh, you know, it's humbling to see how good even, you know, local, not like competitive people can be. And uh, I try to, you know, keep the challenges to beat myself rather than uh, the people next to me because uh, right. <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, you, you know, you got to know your limitations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even, I can't do, I mean, whatever, of course I could do CrossFit, but I haven't carved out the space. I mean, I'm aware that like interval training is probably better for, uh, for weight loss and for your overall like health of your heart. But for me, it's like it's such a feat to actually get to exercise that to like do sprints instead of jogging slowly at that time. I just don't have it in me at this so moment you, in my life. Do you run? Yeah, I, I jog. I run outside when weather permits mm-hmm. and I do the elliptical and swim a little bit if I'm at a gym. And for me, it's more it's more just that I'm finally at an age where my metabolism is slowed down. So when my second daughter was born, I, I put on about 10 or I mean, my second kid, my daughter, uh, put on about 10 to 15 pounds that I'd like to get rid of. And I've just recently cut out carbs like for, uh, breakfast and lunch, um, is my goal. So we'll see how it goes, but that started this year. I I think, you know, it's just finding your own ways is perfectly okay. Like, you know, I don't think people need to follow each other. Yeah. Um, okay. So back, back to chess. And by the way, we should mention you play for the Montclair Sopranos. Um, they've got Mark Arnold, former perpetual chess guest, Alex Lenderman, um, Sean Finn runs the team. So do you guys, do you get to see those guys at all? Yeah. And, and we, we also have a, I don't think he's played yet, but we have a, a 2700 playing for us this year. Uh, Bassem Amin from Egypt. So he's ah, our, yes. uh, he's our, uh, our, our uh, free agent, gonna, I guess. going to throw a tease out there. I'm working on getting him on perpetual chess, knock on wood. All so. right. I'll, tr- I'll try to, I'll try to tell him that you're, no, I mean, you're he's a, in, uh, a decent guy. As, as you know, he's in weekend Z now, so he has a good excuse. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Well. Um, yeah, so you know, it's kind of funny to to even think of of Montclair Sopranos as having a team because Montclair is is a a small place compared to you know New York and and uh, but I'm actually one of the one of the guys who lives in Montclair uh, and then Mac Molner also grew up in Montclair um, and Montclair to to give a little bit of background is is maybe a town of about fifty thousand people I guess you could call it a suburb of New York. Uh, it's maybe 15 miles away from Manhattan, so it's not very far. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I've I've actually hosted since I have a house in Montclair. I've hosted a couple of of get-togethers here, uh, where you know we had a we had a sort of a postseason party last year uh, at my house, and uh, I'm definitely going to try to set something up if I can get people together uh, this year again. You know, obviously, uh, I'm not sure if if someone will come from Egypt for my party, but <laughs> right. you know, I'll invite your, par- your parties aren't that good. Hey, hey! Um, you should come to one before you. Uh, yeah. Before you uh, pronounce yourself. Okay, I, I might take you up on that. Um, so okay, so getting let's zoom out a little bit and talk about your your broader chess career. So of course, everyone, I teased it in uh, to the Patreon subscribers um, of the podcast that obviously. I mean, you you know, you won the Canadian Clothes Championship a couple times, which I had to dig into, like, does that mean you're Canadian champion or not? And I wasn't really able to resolve that question. So yeah, the does- Canadian Clothes, the Canadian Clothes is what they typically call the Canadian Championship. Okay, so you can say you're two-time national champion then. Yes, and, and sometimes I might have said it. Okay, yeah, I would too in, in your situation. Uh, so, okay, related question from Mike Klein, of course, who we both know. Um so Mike says Canada plays top board in final round of the 2016 Olympiad. 
The 2017 Canadian Championship has a hugely controversial finish based on an upside-down rook pawn promotion. A top Canadian GM leaves the World Cup due to his tire. A new Canadian GM-elect looks like a caveman by the time he completes his odyssey to get the GM title. And my question is, don't you miss it? Can, fam- can family life compare? And what the heck is going on in Canadian chess? <laughs> it's, a, it's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Many loaded questions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so where, where to begin? Um yeah, I mean, I, I have to say Canadian chess has been doing, you know, great in terms of just having stronger players than when I was, you know, at, at the top. And it would certainly be a, a difficult championship to, to win again today. Um, you know, I think when I when I became a grandmaster, I was maybe the third Canadian born GM, I think. And obviously there's there's several more. And, and also, you know, people who have come from 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 other countries uh, that make up the team. But like uh the bearded one he's referring to is is one of the chess bras, uh, Amon Hamilton, and uh, I was actually really happy to see him uh, get that title. I mean, I, I I knew him a little bit, you know, when he was much much younger and kind of up and coming, and and uh, you know, I'm I, I was uh, I was happy, and he's a you know a, a local guy that I don't think had access to the same kind of training that you know American players might often have, you know, because in in the U.S. you know there's a lot of grandmasters who teach chess professionally and. It's uh, it's possible to get to get really good coaching early on, um, you know. In Canada, it's not it's not as easy, and it's it still isn't, I think. And so, you know, it's I, I I'm always very happy to see other other people do well there. Um, but do I miss it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the 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 thing I struggle with the most with with my choice of kind of going uh, in a career, you know, in a completely different field is is sort of that that freedom that chess players have of you know, traveling around the world with no real schedule, waking up when they want to, you know, going for going for a drink when they want to, um, you know, and, and not having to, to wake up at 445 every day to get to the gym so that you can get to work by, by you know, a little bit after seven. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think it's uh, these are these are these are tough. These are tough questions for, for anybody. I mean, I, I don't I certainly don't regret you know, the, the choices that I made, but, but these are things that I always wonder, well, well, you know, what would life have been like, uh, otherwise? And, and, uh, you know, I, I, these are, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, but I do, yeah, absolutely. Do I miss, do I miss, you know, going to, to Gibraltar? Well, actually I never went to Gibraltar, but <laughs> I would have liked to, yeah. uh, do I miss going somewhere, you know, to, to, to play? You know, I, I remember going to Iceland as a absolutely wonderful place to, to, to play chess and just hang out. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I certainly do. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can play again. Of course, the family life is a, now that's a whole other question, but, uh, you know, obviously I'm, uh, I'm very happy to, 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 you know, be married, have a son. And, you know, I think, uh, it's, it's, a uh, it's an experience that can't really be described and, and that can't really be understood until you live it. At least that, at least I know I didn't understand it. And, you know, I don't know if you feel the same way, but oh, it's, for uh, sure. yeah. it's definitely not, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, I think it's been amazing and, and I hope it continues to be. And, you know, I'm lucky my son is great. And, you know, it's, um, so yeah, I, w- I wouldn't give that up, but, but do I miss the lifestyle? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. And, okay. But I, you know, I get, I get fun things too, right? Like I'm in a world where I get tickets to any game or event that I might like to go to. And, you know, I eat a lot of good food and good restaurants and, you know, it's, uh, it's all, uh, it's all sort of uh, pros and cons. Yeah, I suspect most listeners don't feel too sorry for you. Uh, 
but I wouldn't want them to. <laughs> but I but I get it for sure. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, with two kids, I've I used to have a much more sort of uh, freewheeling schedule as well. And um, yeah, it's something something um, that you should treasure while you have it if you have it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there, I guess there's two stages, right? Like the the first stage was was having you know a day job, you know, especially in something like finance, that's that's pretty time consuming. Um, and then the second stage is, is, is fatherhood and that takes it to a whole other level. Yeah. So Pascal, you're the first guest I've had, you know, I try to get guests from all over the world and somehow you're the first Canadian born guest I've had. So, you know, you touched on it a little bit a minute ago, but, but why do you think it is that there's historically less of a chess culture in Canada and that they haven't produced as many top players? Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think when you look at the U.S., you know things have things have changed for the better uh, exponentially. I think you know since I've been a little bit away from chess, like the last ten years or so. Um, but there was a time when there weren't too many U.S.-born grandmasters, you know, either. And and you know, I think that has changed in part because the the access to information has become so much. Uh, you know, everything is, is available much more easily today than it was when, when you know, I was a kid. And so that makes it, that kind of evens the playing field a little bit. Uh, but, you know, chess has just never had much financial support in Canada. And, you know, to give you, to give you a concept of it, like when I won the Canadian Championship, which was like a, a two-week tournament, and these were some that were actually sponsored, you know, it was like a almost a two-week tournament. And I think first prize and one was maybe... 2000 Canadian dollars and in another one was maybe 2500 or something like that and these were good ones like there were somewhere there was literally no prize and so you know if you're going to be a professional chess player in Canada uh, well you're just not like it's right. not you, 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 you can't be so you could teach like many you know chess players do in the US anyway uh, because it is hard to, to play even today or you could do with what uh, you know the, the I, I guess the probably most well-known uh canadian grandmaster uh kevin spraga did is move to portugal uh which is a country with reasonable living expenses and play in europe for a living you know um so uh i think because because there is no case to be made for being a professional chess player within canada um you know you you, you there's not that many who get to the level of, of being a professional player you know and i think even the people like eric hansen and and uh you know the newer generation, the younger generation. They, they, you know, don't spend that much time in Canada itself. Yeah. Well, hopefully that they're being from Canada and they're being such great ambassadors for chess will will help the next generation. Um, well, absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that that's great about chess today is that there's a lot of ways to to reach, you know, greater audiences, you know, through the internet and, and other means. And so, for people who are charismatic and who are you know good ambassadors of the game there are a bunch of potential open doors and, you know, and uh, yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's actually a, probably a great time as great a time as ever to be a professional chess player today. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially when, when I've had guests like uh, John Donaldson and John Watson, it really th- puts in perspective just, just how much harder it was say 20, 30 years ago. So um, yeah, I thought I was thinking the same when I was listening to, to, to the John uh, Donaldson podcast, uh, you know, and he was talking about those, those, those guys that I had heard of, but I, I don't think I ever realized the extent to which it was a struggle to, to do what they did, 
you know, back in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s. Yeah, Rosalimo as a cab driver is my, my favorite one. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, we, okay, so um, question, okay, so we've got to get to your crowning achievement, Pascal. Um, in the 2006 Olympiad, you had quite a game against Anand. So here's a question from Paul Canalupo. What was the primary reason you were able to beat Anand? How did you prepare for the game? Um, um, yeah, so I mean, like the, the, the thing is, as much as much as as I do think it's you know the game the most memorable game I've ever played you know for me, um, it, the tournament itself was actually pretty mediocre. I didn't have a great tournament. I think I, even after beating Anon, which you know you only win ten rating points for that, but uh, I think I, I think I still lost rating in that tournament. No, no you so, o- you only win ten rating points for that. Well, most yes. of us would, would get more than that, but anyway, well, go on. Well, yes, but you know the point. The point being that uh, it came at an unexpected time because I, I didn't play very well. Now, it it also came at, at for me sort of a, a great time because it was literally weeks before I would start you know working on Wall Street and I didn't know when I would be able to play chess in any kind of serious way again. Um, and so you know, I think, I mean, there's there's a few things first. First, you know, in terms of game preparation, we had a we had a coach for this Olympiad, and that was because Sid Belsberg, the guy who ultimately hired me, um, he, you know, he was paying for a coach, and we weren't getting paid much to play. But, but the coach was uh, Lev Psahis, who is, uh, you know, some people might know his name. Yeah. I think he's written a few books. He was, you know, uh, the cha- champion of the Soviet Union uh, back in I have no idea what year. Um, but he, you know, very solid, very. Uh, you know, very knowledgeable player, uh, and even more so maybe coach. And he recommended, uh, and when you prepare for a non, by the way, it's not, it's not an easy thing because he plays all kinds of stuff, right? So he plays different Sicilians. He plays the Karakan, he plays E4, E5, you know, he could play anything. Um, and back then I was mostly playing E4. And so, you know, I didn't really know what to expect, but the, the time and off was one of the things that we considered. And, you know, the line that I chose is just a, a line that's, that's fairly easy for white to play and where it's not, not so easy for black to get, you know, sort of an active position. And so we thought that that was a, a good strategy, you know, when you're playing someone so strong who might kind of, you know, try to, try to steamroll you. Um, you know, or, or get you in a theoretical variation that you don't know as well. So, you know, the, the, the opening choice, I, you know, I definitely owe to him because it wasn't a line that I would necessarily, I, I probably, you know, I was always pretty aggressive. So I probably would have gone for one of the lines where I castled queenside and, and, uh, and gotten myself in trouble because I didn't know the line well enough um, quickly. So, so for that, I thank him. And then, you know, I just played a good game and, and, um, you know, and he at some point went for, for, for a somewhat, uh, over aggressive plan and and I found the right ways to counter it and then you know the game ended with a nice move that you know at yeah. least is nice for like a it's always nice when you end the game and it's like it can be a little puzzle like it's not a difficult puzzle but you know no it's it, pretty for, it's for, a pretty finish I I looked at the game this week it's it's a really nice game I recommend people yeah, check so it out yeah so it's it's you know so it's definitely it was a moment like I I almost couldn't believe it when it happened especially because I was not having a particularly good tournament um, and. It's, so yeah, I mean it it, it wasn't, uh, but it's it's also like you know, I think uh, the the difference between grandmasters is not that you know incredibly high, and I think sometimes you know sometimes you do win some, and 
of course, uh, also lose some. But but right. for me, you know, if, if I have to speak to the moment I'm the proudest of in my chess career, it wouldn't be that one. So because you know, it, it that was a great game, and you know, I'm I'm happy I played it. But it's one game, and and there's a limit to how much I think one game can mean. But <clears throat> uh, a moment that people might not know about, you know, I, I think it was maybe written about somewhere. But um, I. And it, it's more obscure, and, and maybe for someone else that wouldn't be what they think of. But I, I, I had the chance to play uh, Karpov at some point um, when I used to I used to work as a chess commentator or, or do sort of you know coaching and, and different things around chess uh, when I was in college when I was at UMBC, and um, I went to uh, to Lindsberg, Kansas when uh, Karpov was going to I forget I think he was playing a match against Polgar. Uh, and that was before he was playing a rapid match in New York against Kasparov. And it was a funny setup where I just got, you know, um, got out out of the plane and I was on my way to the chess club. I get to the chess club and Karpov was uh, playing some blitz games just to, to prepare himself. And he was playing, I think he played a couple of games against uh, Grandmaster Yuri Shulman. And he played played a couple of games against uh, Anna Zatansky, who is, you know, one of the top uh, women players in the country. And um, so I show up, and I still have my suitcase in my hands. And Yuri, who's a you know very friendly, you know sort of funny guy um, that I'm friends with, um, said, you know, Pascal, like you got to sit down and try to play Anatoly because he's you know he's been beating us left and right, and we haven't won a game yet. And so I sit down, and you know obviously Karpov is is feeling very confident. He just got a, a glowing introduction from Yuri, and then the first game I crush him. Nice. <laughs> and so and so. And this is, I think, three or five, I forget, three or five-minute games. And then, uh, um, you know, he rolled up his sleeves and was like, all right, let's play. And I think we played about 20 games, and I was about 50-50. I mean, I think, depending on whether one game was a draw or not, which was kind of a, that's another story, but I'll I'll skip that story. But basically, I scored 50-50 in that somewhat long blitz match against Karpov, who was motivated to win, I think. And, you know, a few weeks later, he beat Kasparov in a rapid match. And so for me, um, for me, that was probably the moment where I was like, wow, like I actually managed to compete. You know, it, it's Blitz, but, you know, it's Karpov. And, and a few weeks later, he beat Kasparov. And for me, that's probably the proudest moment in my chess career. Understandable. That's amazing. So do you remember any of the games? No, no. Oh, okay. It's been it's been so long. And, I, you know, I was never good about writing things down. And uh, it's unfortunate. But, you know, there were people, there were witnesses. So oh, that's good. Like, yeah. It's not a made-up story. <laughs> no, I, I know you well <laughs> enough to know you wouldn't make it up. But you might want to get those people on the record just to be safe, you know. For Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I'm, not, I'm also not trying to, uh, you know. No, yeah, that's not an, trying to achieve anything. That's so. an that's an incredible story, and I love to hear stories about like the the brushes with the legends. Do you do you have any others from um from your yeah, travels? I, mean, I, I think I, I was I was in a sense like as much as Canada didn't have too much of a chess uh, scene. The good thing about being Canadian champion was that you know at the time I was a unique commodity, right? I was the champion of a country that people didn't really have players you know in their tournaments from, and and at Olympiad and other places I got to play. And got to know many people, like from you know, uh, I know Aronian from from being a kid. We played in the same uh, you know World Youth. We were around the same age. Um, you know, I, I had to I had games against you know Aronian, Nigel Short, Rajabov, Ivanchuk. Um, you know, and all, I mean that's incredible. All, all all the players I've named so far, I at least drew. Wow, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, you know, but then I and I, I lost. I lost. Uh, 
I lost also. Um, but uh, like one of the biggest misses I had was a, a, another Olympiad. Uh, I was up a piece against Rajabov, uh, and he was he was younger then, but he was still uh, over twenty seven hundred, and uh, I um, I ended up drawing that game, and that was that was another one that I uh, let slip. And I think in general, I, I in my chess career, I'd say more often than not, I handled pressure well, and I was always extra motivated. I think motivation was always a big issue for me in chess, but when I played the really really top players, I was always so competitive and. And I, I do feel like in chess and in tennis and, and in almost anything, like sometimes you just feel like you get into a zone and you're you're on somehow. And, you know, I think for me that happens sometimes, you know, in these games with, you know, Anand or that match with Karpov. And, you know, if, if only I had sort of the ability to replicate it, I think, you know, um, as a competitor, I, I, you know, I could have done good things. But, uh, yeah. But, yeah, so I, but I have lots of stories with Aronian, you know, and because I, I knew these guys from way back, and a lot of them are now, you know, strong players. I have stories with Dakaru also. Um, right, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I still, I, I saw Aronian uh, um, last year in the summer, and uh, because he was, you know, staying somewhere close to New York City before going to St. Louis to play. And the person he was staying with knew that, you know, I, I uh, knew him from the past and, and somehow got us together. We played basketball. We played a, a couple of blitz games. I, I, uh, I lost one and won one. All uh, right. Wow. Actually, and, um, What's his know, ba- and how's his basketball game? We already uh, got so a Magnus he, scouting report, so now we need a uh, Yeah, so he, he, loves, he loves playing basketball, but I, I wouldn't say... You know, I wouldn't say that he's the, the the best basketball player ever, but he's you know he's he's not so bad. He okay. he, he needs to pass the ball a little bit more. But <laughs> you know that's but that's a, that's uh that's okay. Uh, yeah, but I, we we had we had a fun time. Nice, excellent. Um, yeah, I mean he's known to have a lot of interests. So yeah, uh, he's a he's a very he's a very charismatic. You know, I, I love his I love his uh, his playing style. Actually, I think he's a a great combination of sort of quiet but deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and very sneaky, and he, he calculates, I think, as well as anyone. So I, I, I've always liked his chances as as one of the contenders. But of course, you know, nerves also play a, a huge part in these uh, these outcomes at the end of the day. Yeah, of course. And speaking of which, you you mentioned that you feel like one of your strengths was handling pressure well, and we also talked a bit about the Anon game, uh, the the bishop e seven move in in particular that ended the game. So. Like when you see a move like that, how much does like how much are you able to just calculate versus how much are you like is there a voice in your head saying I'm playing Anand I must be missing something like I'm I'm playing Anand what's going on here like are you able to just shut all that out and just uh, focus on the calculation? Yeah, you know I I think I think at that point at that point there was no doubt in my mind that I was winning because you know the material situation was was pretty clear and you know for. Even body language, you know, it was somewhat obvious that that things were not going well for him. But also, I think, and this may be this may be delusion on my part, but I was never particularly afraid of people, you know. And and, and uh, I think I always played, you know, to win. And and um, you know, except for the opening, where I always, you know, felt really like I was at a disadvantage. I, I always, you know, felt like I could compete, and that's probably somewhat delusional, but. But it helped me in situations like that because I, I don't think I was like, oh, my God, it's impossible that I'm winning. Like for me, it was like, all right, well, it looks like it's made. So right. maybe it is. And I, and I didn't I didn't actually spend very long on Bishop B7. Like, I, you know, I knew I knew pretty quickly. And, and, and then when I played it, he resigned instantly. So, you know, um, yeah, he saw it coming. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Amazing. And so, I mean, in hearing these stories, I mean, I've, you know, we've known each other a long time. I've known you were a grandmaster. I hadn't, I hadn't heard all of these because uh, we talk, you know, more about general life than like, you know, going in the Wayback Machine. But so, yeah. so, I'll, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> so why do you think it is like, I'm almost a little surprised that your peak rating is only 2510. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're really uh, able to hold your own against, um, some heavyweights. So what do you think held you back uh, in, in slower, like in classical jazz? Yeah. So I think, I think I have, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I've been talking more about my positives than my negatives in this podcast so far, but you know, I had huge problems with consistency. First of all, like when I played, I never did very well in, in open tournaments in the U S because, you know, I, I had a tendency to have, you know, one good game, one bad game, you know, and, and, and like I said, I think, you know, openings were a big problem. So sometimes I would get in trouble. Like, I mean, even in the pro chess league, uh, two weeks ago, you know, the one game with black, the very last game I played, um, I got a horrible position out of the opening. I played too slowly and I didn't have even a fighting chance to, to, to do anything in that game. Um, so, you know, there, there were moments like that as well. And they didn't happen as much, I think, against the really heavyweights because I was just so focused uh, and, uh, I didn't, you know, and I, I really wanted to do well, but, you know, I guess at other times I, uh, I didn't. And I, I think, you know, to be fair, I think I got stronger as I went through my college years, but, you know, I didn't get the chance to play that much after that. And so, I, you know, at the end of college, I, I was feeling pretty confident about how I was, how I, I was playing. And, you know, at, at UMBC, we had the chance of having some very strong players. There was Alex Onischuk, who's, you know, still one of the best players in the U.S. And at the time, you know, was uh, the U.S. champion at some point and, and always a contender and still is. Um, Alex Wojciewicz, you know, who uh, sadly passed away, you know, a few years after I graduated, which that's a, that was a really sad story. But I, I spent a lot of time with those guys. Also, Elvis was always around the campus. Mm-hmm. So I spent a tremendous amount of time, like, looking at chess and playing blitz with those guys, uh, you know, because it wasn't really formal training, but we would look at games. And especially with, with Alex Onischuk, who was a very good friend of mine at the time, and, you know, I, I felt like I could analyze with him. And I think he felt that I could, you know, hold my own very well, you know, and he was a, a 2700 player. And so I think from a, I, I think in a practical, my practical results were always well below my analysis. And even like, so, uh, and I don't really know that I found, you know, all the reasons for it, you know, because, you know, at some point I decided to do something else. And so I, I, I never quite got to the, the dark side of all my weaknesses, you know, but right. of which, of which there were plenty, <laughs> um, you know, I had a tendency to blunder. I had a tendency, I mean, I, I, you know, I, we all have our issues. I even, you know, I said I handled pressure well, but when I was a kid, um, I, you know, I used to throw up before almost every single game that I played. And so, you know, well, for, for a time period, not, not, you know, my entire childhood, but that, you know, I went through a period where it's not so much that I think nerves affected my play, but I couldn't control like that physical effect of it, you know, and that was something that was embarrassing as a growing, you know, uh, boy slash teenager, um, you know, I, I, I can't help but have a feeling that I never achieved my potential, but you know, that's that's probably a feeling that most people have, frankly, because you know I think everyone has a lot of potential, but it's it's sometimes hard to to you know it's it's hard for anyone to achieve their full potential. Right, for sure. Um, I don't 
yeah, and I don't want to get too much into like your whole background as a kid, but how old were you when you started playing chess? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, so I would say I have a pretty like standard chess story. Like my, you know, my my parents taught me to moves when I was about five. You know, I think I played my first tournament when I was in first grade. Um, and you know, after that, I played scholastically. I wasn't like one of those kids who progressed at like an absolutely incredible, you know, rate. I think, but you know, I was I was a good. Uh, a good chess playing kid. Like I, I think I was, you know, an expert in Quebec and, and our ratings were very difficult when I was about 11, which probably is about like at the time would have been about 2200 us CF rated. Uh, but then I didn't really reach like, a, you know, like the, the IM level till I was maybe 15. And then another good moment I had in, as a kid was when I was 16, um, a guy in Montreal that was organizing some of the round robins that we had there. And, and, you know, and those were actually great tournaments that, that, uh, that I played in as a, as a teenager, he organized a six game match, uh, between me and a, a grandmaster from Greece, uh, named Igor Miladinovich. And he was maybe 24, I don't know, 26 years old, something like that. And he had been world junior champion several years back. And, uh, you know, I think he was rated about 25, 75, which, you know, back then, you know, is probably more like I don't know twenty six fifty now. He uh, um, he was a tough player, and I expected to get like crushed. And I saw he played all kinds of openings, and somehow I, I won that match three and a half to two and a half. And in in match play, that was probably my best match ever. You know, and that's when I was sixteen, I think. Um, so nice. that gave me motivation to 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 keep playing. Um, and uh, yeah. Cool. And did you have uh, like much in the way of? Were you able to get lessons and stuff as a teenager? Like, like once you started yeah. to get strong enough where you needed help, were you able to get it? Or yeah, so I actually, you know, I, I was fortunate that my my parents got me a coach. His name is uh, Richard Berube, and he's really the only coach I had in my life. Uh, and he was a, I guess he, I think he was a fide master, um, and definitely a better coach than player. Like he didn't play all that much, but. But he was a great coach, and he also uh, he also coached for a while uh, Le Siege, who was you know one of the like sort of the 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 guy that I looked up to as a kid. Um, you know, he was maybe seven or eight years older than me, something like that, and um, you know became a grandmaster at a young age, and he was a really talented player. So my the the coach I had also had, had coached him at some point. Um, so yeah, I mean I had I had private lessons with him maybe till my early teenage years, and after that. You know, I think more than others, I was I was pretty self-taught. Like, I, and I had weird. You know, I, I I started to play on the internet. You know, really when I first got an internet connection, which was maybe in like '97 or something like that. You know, when you had the modem that dials. You know, I feel bad that our kids might never know what that was like. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I played on the the fix, like the free internet chess yeah. server, and then I started playing on ICC. And I think I learned a tremendous amount from playing grandmasters because i didn't have access to that kind of training and you know i actually think that playing grandmasters as a as a young master even if even though they were blitz games like even in blitz games i think you know really strong players are able to show extremely high level ideas that they've just seen before because it's just a pattern right and the pattern replicates itself and 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 so you know you get to appreciate all these ideas and sort of uh in a competitive uh environment and uh you know, so rather than go through thousands of books, and I did, I did read books, but you know, I, I did a lot of practical. Like I played a lot. So, 
Okay. Maybe yeah. More, more so than the kids, you know, today, you know, are, are studying in a, and it's probably more efficient, but you know, that was my path. Yeah. And there are several guests we've had who had sort of a sort of learn by doing type training, like, you know, Greg Shahadi played tons of blitz, Hikaru, like tons of blitz. So it's, a, yeah. and it's, and it's so a fun way to train if it works for you. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, studying can be fun too. And like learning the history and like, you know, like, you know, cranking out some study that takes half an hour or something like that can be rewarding in its own right. But yeah, but bless you get your, that, that instant feedback, that dopamine hit. So, uh, yeah. Li- listening to your podcast has made me feel like I should go back and, and read some, some history books, you know, like the, right. the, the, all this stuff about Fisher and Lombardi and, and, uh, and those guys, especially, you know, the American players, um, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a, a lot of really interesting stories. So I, I, I do feel compelled to, to, when I find some time to go back and look at that. I'm right there with you. Uh, and we should both get back to our families, Pascal. But uh, before before I let you go, and this has been awesome, um, of course, we need to ask for improvement advice. You just touched on some, but do you have any book recommendations or just general advice for uh, for any listeners who are out there um, hitting the books? Yeah, I mean, sure. So, so first of all, I guess, you know, and, and some of that is, is, is style, but, but I think my favorite chess book, uh, is the 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 book uh, by Michael Tal, uh, or you know that's called I think My Life in Games, right? Um, which you know is is sort of a biography and a and a and a chess book, and there's a lot of games, and you know I think in this day and age sometimes you know there, there's a little bit less creativity in chess, and and just going through that is is incredible. Um, I actually just gave my copy to somebody, and I have to buy a new copy, but. Huh. Um, um, so that's that's one book, and then you know obviously I haven't I haven't kept up with with all the books that come out now, and I have no doubt you know everyone seems to be talking about about a few uh, yeah. a few great books. Uh, so I'm, I might not be the the best person with the newer books, um, but you know I I still feel like some of their historical collections, like whether the like the the great predecessors or or even like Zurich Fifty Three, which was probably the the classic you know book when I was a kid. Yeah, um, are still books that you know. Personally, I like the books that combine sort of stories and chess. You know, um, me too. So, you yeah, know, those those are those are some some of these. But uh, but you know, it's 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 such a different world now than it was. Uh, you know, the opening books are a completely different level, and and um, you know, there's a lot of great material because I think it's it's easier to come up with the material with all the tools that are that are at our uh, disposal. And, you know, it's the same thing in finance. It's it, you know. What took uh, ten hours to do might take one, you know, today compared to fifteen years ago, and so it's uh, the world. The world is evolving in great ways. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing how much information about everything is available. Um, okay, well, Pascal, this was awesome. I, I I knew you would be a good guest, but I didn't know you had so many stories. So that this was a uh, this was quite a treat. Well, uh, thanks, Ben, and I. You know, I, as uh, as you can tell, I, I listen to your podcast quite a bit, and I think it's been a it's been a great, uh, a great thing to have. And, you know, I'm one of the, one of the, one of those guys who commutes to work, uh, on a daily basis. And, and, uh, I really appreciate, uh, the time you spend doing it. I think it's, it's awesome. Cool. Yeah. As a commuter myself, those, you, you guys are my people. <laughs> the commuters yeah. are, uh... the commuters. Yeah. I mean, and I, I commute in a, in a car, but I, I'm sure like the train and buses are also uh, good candidates for, uh, for podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, uh, well, thanks again, and good luck in the Pro Chess League. Um, good luck to the Montclair Sopranos as well. Uh, we'll we'll be watching, and uh, anyone who hasn't seen Pascal's um, 
unfortunately we can't see your games against uh, Carpop, so we'll have to settle for your game against Anon. They should they should take a look. Um, sure. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Pascal, and uh, I will see you in person sooner or later. Thanks, Ben. I hope so. Special shout out to my PayPal and Perpetual Partners. I spend about five hours a week working on the show, and while I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Without these people, the show would not be possible. So, special thanks to Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Gary Andrews, I am Greg Shahadi, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, John Fernandez, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchek, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Seymour, Todd Bryant, Victor Vrankulj, FM Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. I will catch you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.